0: The preponderance of our portfolio is investors, people who want to buy rental property, want to own one, two, five, ten properties as opposed to somebody who just got stuck with a house some way, somehow couldn't sell it.
1: Welcome, closers. Today, we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you. This is is Season 2 on Sales. I'm your host, Jordan Moila, and every week, I interview world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actual insights to help you grow your property management empire. So whether you manage a 100 or a 1,000 units, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Sweet Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Today I'm talking with Douglas Skipworth, the co-founder and principal broker at Crestcore Realty, a market-leading real estate firm that manages residential investment and rental properties in Memphis, Tennessee today and globally sometime in the near future, I'm pretty sure. We'll see. We'll have to find out from Douglas. Since 2001, Crestcore has helped real estate investors purchase over a 1,000 properties and its management portfolio has grown to more than 2,500 residential Properties in Memphis. In today's episode, Douglas is going to share where most property managers go wrong when it comes to attracting and closing that coveted investor group, these folks that are repeat buyers, these folks that have a vision for where they want to go through real estate. If you enjoy the show, head over to iTunes, leave us a review. The more views that we get, the more exposure we can uh, receive, which really just means better and better guests. So let's go ahead and dive in. Douglas, welcome to the show.
0: Hey, Jordan, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Well, Douglas, I just want to start off with your background because I really feel like that that's going to frame the issue of why it is that your business has been so effective at targeting investors. So walk me all the way back to your undergrad work at Vanderbilt. How did you see your career trajectory back then? Were you entrepreneurially minded at that point in your life?
0: Oh, man. Wow. You're starting way back. My dad is a small business owner and he's a portrait photographer. So he had many studios kind of across the Southeast. So I, I definitely have some of that. I know we'll get to born or bred, but some of that in my blood. But no, coming out of school, I wasn't exactly sure what my career path would look like. It wasn't etched in stone. I had a bunch of friends who knew they wanted to be a doctor. Or they wanted to be a lawyer um, right out. I did not have that luxury. So I had to kind of try a few things before i found my eventual kind of life purpose
1: okay i love it so the journey that you took that makes sense to me because when i look back at the places that you worked and kind of the industries that you were in the common theme that i'm seeing is a lot of size a lot of scale a lot of regulation not necessarily the most entrepreneurial environment so walk me through what you did immediately out of school the first few jobs that you held
0: I went to work for a large commercial bank here in Memphis coming out of school in Nashville, so staying in Tennessee, a regional bank, because I wanted to see a lot of businesses. I wanted to understand. I knew numbers, finance, accounting was the language of business, so I wanted to kind of familiarize myself with that and then again see see some entrepreneurs in action, see some different industries, different size businesses from publicly traded companies all the way down to the mom and pops. And, and the bank allowed me to do that But I always found myself, as I look back 20 20 plus, 25 years later, I always wanted to be on the other side of the table. You know, I always wanted to be the one borrowing the money or growing the company. So I couldn't help myself
1: but get from the advisory role to the owner operator role. When did you make your first deal in terms of buying a piece of real estate?
0: Yeah, so kind of with that, I, I, I got a, a master's in accounting while I was at, at the bank and learned more about finance and investing, and then started working in public accounting, worked for EY, which is big, big, one of the big four accounting firms, got to move to New York City for a couple years, and then had a chance to to move back to Memphis to be an owner-operator, work in a small business, a, a real estate technology startup, kind of like a proprietary Zillow. And so as I was doing that, I was learning a lot about residential real estate. And I started jogging with a friend, a guy I met uh, named Dan Butler. We moved in the same neighborhood and enjoyed exercising together. And he was buying real estate, residential property, small apartments and, and small single family homes. And I was learning a lot, had that finance accounting investment background. And so it was at that point that I learned, hey, here's where I could marry some industry knowledge with, you know, kind of that desire to play in the finance accounting world. So I was able to, you know, make my first purchase on a on a single family home.
1: And how did that go? Walk me through that first deal.
0: Oh, man, it was awesome. So. I knew that to, to succeed as a real estate investor, you needed to, you know, know your values. You needed to find a lot of opportunities to look at and then make some deals. So I picked a neighborhood not far from a house that I could drive by and check out and, um, really started trying to figure out what were market rents. What were the values for the homes? So once I knew those values, I just started looking for opportunities. I was looking, looking on MLS, looking at for sale by owner, you know, talking to a real estate agent, looking at anything online people, Posted on Zillow, Craigslist, anything to find a property. So I found one through the MLS, made an offer on it, had a line of credit on my personal residence because that was back in the heyday and they the, the bank gave me a line of credit because the value of my home had appreciated and there was some equity there. And so I was able to buy it on a line of credit, put a little rehab into it, get it rented, and then go refinance that out, get all my money back, and then kind of rinse and repeat, if you will, so... That's kind of how I got my start, which is exactly what Dan was doing on Parallel Tracks. We were just sharing with each other as we were doing it, encouraging each other, and holding each other accountable.
1: All right. So you do that before Crestcore. You kind of build up a bit of a portfolio. What was the trigger for you to decide to begin managing other people's properties instead of just your own portfolio?
0: Dan and I don't throw darts at a board. We bet on sure things. Okay. Have you ever read
1: Sun Tzu's Art of War? I sure have. Yeah, absolutely. Every battle is won before it is ever fought. Man, quoting and quoting it back to me.
0: (laughs) I love it. in all seriousness, I mean, Dan and I, we really do practice Warren Buffett's two rules of investing. You know his two rules of investing? I couldn't
1: quote him off the top of my head. Okay.
0: Rule number one is don't lose money. Rule number two is don't forget rule number one.
1: (laughs) Sounds pretty foolproof. So as Dan
0: and I were buying rental property, we were really doing that, living that out. Try, try not to lose money. Try not to forget rule number one. We were investors, but we had had a W-2 job. We both had full-time jobs um, and we're doing our investing on the side. And so we got to that point where we realized, so we kind of got to these three things. We knew we needed a long-term property management solution. We knew we needed accountability to consistently get better in the property management And then thirdly, because we had our jobs and because we were growing our portfolio, we knew we needed some personnel and we needed some money to to pay for that personnel. So third party management looked like that sure thing. It looked like a small experiment we could do to see if this would work. And so we kind of made a small bet on ourselves to build a property management company to take care of our own rentals by taking care of other people's rentals.
1: And how many doors were you at at that time?
0: Man, we probably had a 100-ish together uh, between yours, mine, and ours, Dan and I. And then we cobbled together pretty quickly another 50-ish from friends and family. So probably at 100, 150, but we were kind of doing it on our own. And we probably didn't get, it was probably about 300 before we hired somebody to help us.
1: Would you describe yourself as having been pretty connected with the investor community at that point? When right out of the gate, when you started CrestQuer?
0: Yes and no. We were definitely not connected to the investor community when we started buying rental houses on our own. But as we kind of grew our own personal portfolio, we did get more and more connected. But we were never out marketing ourselves as providing services to other investors. We were more. Kind of that mutual uh, exchange that you get from just sharing knowledge with other investors. Hey, do you have a deal for me? Maybe I've got a deal for you. Hey, how did you do this deal? Do you know a banker? Do you know an insurance agent? Do you know a closing attorney? Do, do you know a roofer? Do you know an electrician? Do you you know just working with with others in the business, developing relationships.
1: Gosh, I love that. Okay, so all that background to get to this can you describe for me what crestcore sells how would you articulate that
0: so crestcore on the, the property management side we are providing a, hopefully a hassle what we're shooting for is a hassle-free property management experience for both our clients our renters and our employees so we're trying to make make it hassle-free for everybody so we got about 600 clients you know international um, and local that buy property here in Memphis. Yeah, it's about 2,500 plus units. But for us, there are a couple other offshoots off that which play into it. Um, we might not really spend our time talking about today, but is equally as applicable on the sales and marketing side. And that is our real estate brokerage, which is investment property focused so we don't do traditional owner occupant brokerage. We do help investors buy, help investors sell rental property, mostly single family homes and small apartment complexes, but dabble in 50 to 100 unit apartments if we can, as well as little, little small commercial. And then the maintenance company that takes care of all of our maintenance needs, as well as some other property management companies in town.
1: You mentioned property management, the brokerage, as well as uh, the maintenance company. Are these distinct entities? Is it all under Crest Core? Help me understand the structure.
0: Ideally, there are three different entities. So Crestcore Realty is one entity and it's got the brokerage and property management. And then the maintenance company is called City Light Commercial Services, and it is its own entity. At some point, brokerage and property management, we would like to split. We actually have an entity called Crestcore Property Management LLC that we will kind of graduate to, but we just got to put some things in place internally, accounting personnel and such.
1: Got it so in terms of the actual growth of the portfolio, is the bulk of that growth coming from the real estate transaction side of things as opposed to bringing on somebody that has one single family property and is never going to buy another like what's what's the profile or the makeup of your existing customers and where they came from
0: good question it's kind of changed over time initially it was word of mouth referral friends and family of Investor, you and I know each other and and see each other at conferences, and and we are big fans of a user of Lead Simple. So I love what y'all are putting out. And so one of one of the guys we follow is Ben White, you know, and his his books, and loved seeing him at PM grow and Adam. So one of his books, he talks about the five channels. Uh, that you 've had him on the show, we we do the same thing we we call it three channels, but we they 're a little different so we 've always looked at it as there 's three ways to get property management clients. We can buy or acquire a property management company, we can find new clients, or we can grow with our existing clients and so we have always focused on growing with our existing clients haven 't acquired a property management company. Haven't spent as much time and effort trying to find new clients. We have spent all of our time and effort trying to grow with our existing clients. And that is, you know, educate, help, answer questions and walk them through how we personally went from zero units to 10 units to 20 units and help them go through that. And the brokerage is a key component of that to help them find deals, help them finance deals, help them Partner with the right insurance company, the right closing attorney, um, and, and work through that. Now, that's not to say we don't do that. That second channel, which is find new clients, so we we are looking. We've done a lot more looking for new clients over the past couple years than we did uh, initially because a lot of clients would find us. It's gotten a little more competitive over the years as property management has become more sophisticated, but. We've grown with our existing clients, and now the brokerage has allowed us to find the new clients. So, there, there are websites out there like Bigger Pockets, that's a great resource for buyers. Memphis is, I mean, we, we, we're kind of one of those things. Or are we lucky or skilled? I mean, we would say we're blessed to be in Memphis, Tennessee, where a lot of investors want to buy property. And so, we get a lot of uh, attention. Memphis gets a lot of attention. We get a, We attract a lot of inquiries because of that. So we're able to kind of, you know, we kind of fish with a net instead of having to fish with a, a line because there's so many fish out there.
1: I love it. So just to be clear, are you describing a situation where that growth Of growing with your existing clients, is that more like helping investors buy more properties or helping non-investor landlords become investors and embrace that investor mindset? I would
0: say the the former of helping investors buy more property as opposed to converting an accidental landlord into an investor. The the, the preponderance of our portfolio is, is investors, people who want to buy Rental property want to own one, two, five, ten um, properties as opposed to somebody who just got stuck with a house some way somehow couldn't sell it. So it's really
1: the brokerage that is drawing in these investors, and then you're working with them to grow their portfolios. Correct.
0: That is correct. And then the second thing is we're we're always kind of what you alluded to initially or earlier was we built a lot of relationships in the marketplace being investors ourselves, uh, again, with banks, with insurance agents, with closing attorneys and the like, when they have clients who express an interest in a property management service or buying rental property or selling rental property, they send them our way. They refer that business to us. Um, So that that relationship, that professional relationship has just been a goldmine for us as far as acquiring new business.
1: Okay, great. So how do you think that those people that are referring your business think about what you guys do on the brokerage side? How do you think that they think about the differentiating factor of Crestcore in terms of facilitating a purchase transaction as opposed to XYZ agent down the road?
0: I think no trust and like is big. I think the experience we have is is really important because they know we've kind of blazed that trail, so to speak. And we we kind of eat our own cooking and and know what we're talking about and they're doing. But I, I would say because we specialize in it and because we focus on it, we have more outlets. So for a buyer, we have more sources of leads for properties. We can we can find more opportunities than a regular agent can, or a property management company that doesn't help people buy. Similarly, on the sell side, if somebody wants to sell a property, we've got more channels for them to sell um, their property. I mean, we get we get it all the time. It's because we've got 600 plus clients that that we get referred to help people sell their property because they know we've got the buyers. Kind of Willie Sutton, why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. It's like, well, why why do you send them to
1: Crestcore? Because that's where the buyers are. You know, that's where the investors are. That's why they're going to refer them to us. There are some situations where you get a piece of advice and you feel like maybe it's not necessarily applicable. And in some ways, when I look at what you've done, you know, how do you replicate a decade's worth of actually being an investor in the market? You can't. You can't do that overnight. But the point is, with the principle is, that you are attracting more of what you are like, and you made that decision early on. It sounds like it. maybe it wasn't necessarily strategic. Early on, you just wanted to own some real estate and to experience that journey of wealth creation through real estate. But the byproduct of you living that was that you were able to attract other people who wanted to be... In that same place. So, as a long game principle, that absolutely is something that people can reorient around. In a short term game, that's not necessarily something that you can clone overnight. So, thinking about the positioning of where you're at in the market, you and I know that various property management companies view some or multiple parts of the business as being loss leaders, right? In the extreme example, property management is just a loss leader for maintenance, title, uh, brokerage, whatever it may be. If you were to look at the deals and the transactions that you were doing, let's say that you were kind of going sideways on the personal investing that you had been doing, or even on the brokerage side of things, do you think that that would still have justified what you're doing from a lead gen strategy? Or do you view that as really being core and the property management revenue as being additive? Like, How how do you think about the constituent parts of the business and what they contribute to your overall goals?
0: We definitely say that property management is our core business. So goes property management. So goes the whole enterprise. Brokerage can be do, can be doing great, helping people buy all day long, or helping people sell if they need to. But if property management is sucking wind, we're going to be in trouble. It's the same with maintenance. But on the flip side, if if the property management company is is executing well and doing the things it should be. It's kind of the rising tide that lifts all boats. It's the one
1: that that we orient around, for sure. Really, what I want to explore with you, Douglas, is the relationship between the investing side of the business and property management. Because when we think about what most property management companies are selling, it really tends to be a a stasis-driven sort of thing. I have this asset. I don't want anything bad to happen to it. I'd like it to grow, but honestly, that's, that's largely... In terms of the consumer perception, a market condition based kind of scenario, but I definitely want my downside protection there. And it's implicit in the word property management. By nature, the level of, of excitement or proactive effort that is going to be kind of granted to just the name itself is low. Whereas, If we're flipping, we're we're doing deals. Like That feels like more of a proactive sort of thing. So the challenge that I see is that so many property managers feel commodified when they talk to people in the first question is, well, what's your price? And yet there's also that understanding of how they are contributing to being commodified by virtue of not selling a better story. If the story is simply, I will maintain what you have and make sure that nothing bad happens to it. In many ways, it's not a compelling story as compared to long-term wealth creation through real estate. In your opinion, why is it that more property management companies don't sell and lean into that story in light of the fact that you have and you've seen the power that comes from it?
0: I mean, it's easy to get caught up in the day-to-day as far as a property management business. And it's a hard business. You manage 200 units and, and one, just one thing goes, goes wrong or just 1% of things go wrong. That's still one issue you're dealing with that could be a big, a big deal. So it's a lot of putting out fires. You get limited on your mindset. If you're not participating in NARPUM or PM Grow or listening to your podcast or listening to some of the other stuff that's out there, um, or reading it, it could be very lonely. You know, it's a lot of times as you hear somebody who joins somebody, something like NARPUM. To say, oh, I found my people. I found somebody who speaks my language, who understands what I go through all day, every day. So um, if you're out there alone, you you maybe can get short-sighted and lose sight of the bigger picture of what, what this is.
1: Part of what I hear you're saying is that it's circumstantial. And maybe if you had started a property management business first and not had the experience of investing, that maybe you're saying that you might have gotten stuck there and not realized the power of, of going deep on that, that investor side. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? I, I, I
0: think that is, is, is one possibility for sure. And something that I, I feel like I've seen, witnessed locally in our marketplace here for sure
1: let's just talk more about kind of the power of of that story ultimately businesses are brands they're selling stories that consumers believe that they can participate in as a result of working with the brand you're selling wealth creation through real estate somebody else is selling the opportunity to basically just kind of maintain what they have when we say that that is what you are selling, what does that look like for you? Put legs on that. Is, that. is that content? Is that just mindset? Is that your ability to facilitate a phone call and speak the investor's language, pro formas? Walk me through what's bound up in that that allows you to actually accomplish that.
0: That is kind of what we feel the, the core of, of, of who we are. And part of it's in our, our, our core values, integrity, personal responsibility, partnership, service, growth and long-term perspective. And so it's kind of tied up into some of that's in that investor mindset of um, partnerships, long-term perspective, you know, growth. And so we're able to bring that to the table in those conversations. So yes, a lot of times we go back to that Peter Drucker question of like, who's your customer and what do they need? And so, you know, who's our customer, what do they need? And so we kind of, again, try and revolve around that. And our customers, our investors, and what do they need? Yes, they need their property managed, but they need education. They need great service. Um, so that looks like continually improving our operations and customer service for them. And I mean, we could spend a whole episode just talking about strategies and tactics around you know property management, the business, uh, running the business. But then also, it's a lot, as you mentioned. Content, Alex. Um, Osaniko over at Four and a Half, who you know well, he's got a great framework that we, we borrowed for about where it's, you know, content, reputation, and closing. So on the sales and marketing side. So we're trying to do all kinds of stuff to improve our reputation and generate content, which makes the closings easier. I know we've talked a little about this in the past, but it's anything from, uh, investor education with blogs and videos, radio shows, investor events, attending conferences, spe- trying to do speaking engagements, trying to participate in things like this so that then that enhances our reputation as thought leaders in the industry, which allows us to create content and it just becomes that virtuous cycle that feeds, feeds each other um, and creates real value for our clients. Because at the end of the day, it's like, again, who are our clients? What do they want? We're trying to create stuff that they want.
1: Now, when you do that content creation, do you think that is more of being a lead gen activity or do you think that is more of being a nurturing activity for your existing customers to get them to that next step of making another purchase?
0: Oh, man. Initially, we thought of it as a nurturing, but we've realized that it, it has a lot of lead gen benefits. But initially, it was how do we grow with our existing clients? And how do we help them? What do they need? Education. What do they need? Camaraderie. What do they need? You know, to know they're not alone, to know that, to know what's ahead, to know somebody's been there and and seen it and done it. And again, as we started doing that, we realized, wow, that that's creating some leads and let's, let's be more intentional about that. And we create even more leads. So as we, as we have to kind of have moved into that finding new clients, um, as well as helping the existing clients grow.
1: All right, so let's talk about some types of of content. Five tips for first-time landlords. Real estate investor events and education podcast. Memphis versus Las Vegas for investment property. So these are just some random headlines of things you've produced in the past. What are specific types of content and what's really worked well for you in terms of nurturing your existing clients and getting them motivated to, to make another purchase with you? As
0: we've gone through this process journey together we're always kind of trying to take nuggets and organize thoughts and so we created some content years ago for ourselves but for our clients to kind of do lunch and learns and kind of boot camp stuff for locals and we created different little segments like here's the three ways appraisers appraise Rental property, you know, income approach, cost approach, sales comp approach. And we did a little section on that. And then we did something on here, are the different ways to finance it through traditional financing or through a commercial bank or through a hard money lender or a private lender, or seller financing. And, and we do these little segments and we, we would teach those. Once we taught them, we packaged it up and then we did some blog stuff on it and put it on our website. And now the leader of our real estate brokerage, Dean Harris runs, he has a, a local radio show so he kind of followed the NARPAM model of getting sponsors, some of our closing attorneys, real estate um uh insurance agents and others to underwrite the show. So it's paid for that way, and then he hosts the show. And so then we get on and talk about these concepts. So, so I had the privilege to be on the show recently and got to go on and talk about here are the three ways to that an appraiser is going to look at at a, a rental property to create an appraisal and. So we're repackaging that, putting it out there in different forms, whether it's video, whether it's text, whether it's classroom, to benefit our existing investors, but as well as to create content that a a new investor will come in and say, oh, I've always wondered how appraisers are going to come up with my appraisal. Or I always wondered about the different ways to finance. Or, okay, this makes sense. This answers my question. Or this skims the surface enough that now I want to ask them some more questions and they can walk me through this.
1: Okay. So here's what I like about what you're describing. You're forcing yourself to develop a stable of well thought through content. We both know that a one-time blog post can feel very transactional, right? If, if the medium is a blog post, it's easy to make it underwhelming just to check off a box. If the medium is an in-person investor event, we've just raised the bar. You're looking at these people eyeball to eyeball. And if you're just talking low value added nonsense, it's going to be awkward. So you use the medium, of in-person and then you kind of took these various silos so you compartmentalized self-contained pieces of value you gave us a couple of different examples and when you went deep on that topically it then created the opportunity for you to flesh that out and repackage it on other mediums whether not be a blog post on somebody else's site like what you've done with think realty or on the radio show et cetera. All of this ultimately, though, is really stemming from the fact that you've actually done it and you have firsthand experience. So the moral conviction that you're able to speak with is obviously going to be a lot more practical than somebody that's learning this stuff from scratch. I love that framework. Walk me a little bit more through the radio show. How did that come about? What did that look like? can you prove any of this stuff works? I always love coming back to that, right? I mean, talk to me about the degree to which this is a faith-based proposition. Because at the end of the day, values are basically faith-based propositions. It's what you personally decided is important to you and if it's really an actual meaningful value, to some degree it's going to be divorced from any kind of demonstrable short-term ROI. So with content specifically, are you doing analytics to track conversions, et cetera, or is it more just a, a discipline that you've decided to commit to stemming from your values and and how has radio kind of worked for you in relation to that?
0: It's the latter. We haven't gotten to the point where we can quantify and run the analytics that we want to. I mean, I think that's part of how we're evolving over time from where we used to be word of mouth, willpower, personality. I mean, we were going to get this and grow this business by our just strong desire and now we're trying to make it consistent, make it, you know, process oriented and make it scalable. Um, and, and part of that is quantifying it and, and, and running the analytics around it. But the radio, again, we we don't account for our time, but we do count for like the physical money out. So with the radio show where we have to pay for radio time, as long as we get the sponsors to cover the cost, then it's an investment of time we're making, but it's creating content it builds that reputation and it creates the content. It's it's something we lead with as much as we can um, as a differentiator in the marketplace of hey, we might hey we might not be the very best, but we're we, we are the most knowledgeable. We've got a radio show. Here are some episodes that you might find interesting we just lead with that as much as we can
1: (laughs) so it really goes back to that micro influence when you go to a company's website within the first three seconds you've made a lot of strong judgments that everything after that is being interpreted through so if you roll up to an investor and you inform them that hey guess what i have a blog well so what now, on the other end of the extreme, I've got a book and it's a real book and it was published by you know a legit publishing house, New York Times bestseller. Somewhere in that spectrum, regardless of the content, the context radically informs what we choose to believe about that person and how it colors everything else that happens afterwards. But the other thing that I like about content, and you could speak to this, is that the discipline that it forces. For me, content is an extension of my values in so much as I believe in Serving, educating, and improving myself as being necessary to do that. So, creating the content walks me through the exercise of learning and articulating myself. And that is what I find to be the most powerful virtuous circle, right? It prevents mental laziness, it prevents an entitlement mindset because you're always having to get better to kind of sharpen your blade. Do you feel like that as you've done more content creation, it's sharpened your ability to articulate your value prop in a more explicitly sales focused conversation, meaning moving from the video that you shot and getting back to having a sales conversation. Do you feel like there's carryover in terms of the value creation?
0: No doubt. It not only in the sense, does it give give more succinct talking points instead of some rambling kind of the framework, but if you've really been thoughtful about it and it's really true it's a real benefit. Uh, who was it? I think it was maybe when you had Victor uh, Antonio on here and he was talking about bringing that that market knowledge and teaching them something and teaching the prospect. And so you're, you're able to teach them something that they don't know. You know, because right now, and we talked a lot about this about PM Grow, the consumer knows a lot. You know, your buyer knows a lot. So it's hard, you know, you can't just regurgitate You got to be able to present new ideas, things they haven't thought about, things that you've learned through experience, which anybody who's been in the property management business for a year has learned more than most investors will ever know just by being in the trenches and to share that experience, to have some talking points, to kind of tell, have you thought of this? Um, And that's a lot. I know we're not talking about closing per se, but that's a lot of how we get warm leads, to the closing table and kind of get them over the hump is through asking them questions and then telling them or you know sharing with them some of our horror stories or, oh, we learned this. You want to avoid doing that or um, have you thought about this? You know, this is the, a lesson learned the hard way and just kind of unpacking some of that. And again, some of that framework, the content, the content gives us to talk through a lot of those points.
1: Love it. Totally makes sense to me. The last thing I wanted to ask you about this before we head to the rapid fire section of the interview is when you think about wealth creation through real estate, that story that you're selling that's been really effective for you to grow your business, where do you see future facing innovation? And I specifically want to ask you about syndicating deals. Have you, or have you ever considered syndicating deals, let's say in the multifamily space and allowing your current customers to have the opportunity to have fractional ownership and some kind of a, a deal along those lines?
0: Yes, we've thought about it, have never done it, have a couple of investor clients who kind of do something like that. We want to be so buttoned up operationally before we go go that route. And we're getting, we're getting closer and we're excited about that as a possibility. And that's one of the reasons we just love this business is, man, because there's so many opportunities to provide service and add value with that knowledge and the continually trying to sharpen the sword, kind of like you said, continually personal development and learn that the sky's kind of the limit as far as what you want to make of it.
1: So are you doing any deal flow right now? Do you actively put deals in front of your existing stable of owners?
0: We do from the standpoint of... Our brokerage side looking for opportunities and then, you know, know who they know who is a, a red hot buyer or an active buyer or has money or will look at a good deal. Um, so they're constantly, the brokerage side's constantly putting deals out there for clients.
1: So the brokerage is really integrated with the management company in that regard. Like 100%. The-
0: yes, absolutely.
1: Love that. Yeah, I think that's key. Okay, great. Well, let's move to the rapid fire section of the interview. I'm just going to ask questions that hopefully you've got a a guttural response to. And the first question is, what type of real estate transaction or deal structure will you never do again?
0: Buying a property at foreclosure that we don't don't have any, any experience in. We bought a commercial building at foreclosure. We had a ton of experience buying residential property at foreclosure and had no problem. Bought a commercial building at foreclosure, didn't really know what we were doing. And th- four years later, we still have that commercial building and are kind of trying to figure out what the heck we're doing with it.
1: Okay, so it wasn't so much the foreclosures, but just the fact that you had less experience with commercial? And getting
0: out of your, area, your circle of competence or your area expertise, that's right.
1: Love it. it was a small experiment, but it, 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 thankfully it wasn't a huge bet. <laughs> okay, so, it okay. was just, so, all right. Anyway, so second question: How would you advise someone who's thinking about starting a property management business and debating whether or not to go solo or to take on a business partner?
0: I couldn't walk through life without a business partner. Personally, I think it, it's it's kind of who who you are. If you if you need that accountability, you need to share in. The successes you want somebody to celebrate with, you want somebody to commiserate with, um, you want somebody to shore up your weaknesses, somebody who you can maximize your strengths with. You know, then you're a great candidate for a partner. Finding a partner is a harder, harder thing, um, but you you might be a candidate for, for looking for a partnership if some of those things ring true for you.
1: Have you had any partner experiences that went south? Uh, I've definitely had
0: um, some partnership experiences that were more challenging than my current business partner, Dan Butler. He and I have had some relationships that have not, not been as great personally. And then outside of um, our partnership, we've both had some things, again, more challenging, nothing disastrous. But, you know, nothing to scare us away from ever being partner. You know, those people who are who, are, who, are, who have been, you know, burned. Um, been burned and hey, I'm never going to date again, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. Um, so now we, we love
1: love our partnership. Awesome. Who do you learn from currently?
0: Oh my goodness. Um, I try and learn all day every day from whomever. Read a ton. Um, love reading business how-tos and biographies, especially business autobiographies. Love that. Uh, love listening to podcasts, whether it's something like like, uh, your show or, or things like how I built this and, uh, masters of scale, you know, just good, good, good shows out there. Um, and then learn from, you know, friends and colleagues. We're part of a group called Vistage, which is like EO or some of these other, it's a peer network. Learn a ton from those guys because they're, they're battling the same things we're doing. In different industries, but same same personnel issues, same client issues, same operational issues, same financing issues. So it's it's a good group to, to to learn from. Learning all the time.
1: I like that. So you're, you're exposing yourself to learning this well outside the realm of property management. I, 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 yes, absolutely. <laughs> so how do you think about legacy in business, Douglas?
0: Oh man, I'm 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 only 44. Man, I hope to be doing this for. Uh, 56 more years. I hope to be doing it until I'm 100. So I've got a long time to think about that. Um, I, I think about it as kind of showing up and doing what, what what you're called to do day in, day out, and, you know, kind of leaving things better than you found them, um, whatever that will look like, you know, serving your clients well, serving your, your employees well, colleagues well.
1: What one book has impacted you the most?
0: Oh, man. Um, outside the Bible, uh, man, I would probably say... Um, a good one for this group is built to last by Jim Collins. It was kind of a precursor to good to great, but I I just, it it just meant a lot, you know, it's kind of foundational for how we're building our business. Kind of talking about a legacy, you know, built to last, built around purpose, you know, and change, you know, purpose and change both at the same time.
1: Playing the long game. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a classic, If you could do it all over again, what advice would you have given yourself at the beginning of your real estate career?
0: Even though we valued relationships so much, I don't think you could overemphasize it in the sense of the right hires, the right partners, like we just talked about. I mean, just surrounding yourself with the right people and and being way more intentional about that and not settling you know holding holding out and doing even if that means doing more yourself until you found you know the right quote partners business partners vendors suppliers customers clients
1: what i've been thinking about recently is relationship versus productivity and my experience has been that in business a lot of times we view these two things as kind of competing priorities like what we really want is productivity and we're willing to embrace relationship as a proxy or a medium for for getting back to productivity culture for example it's considered soft skills and in some ways it can be viewed as kind of a a secondary background sort of thing or maybe a means to an end as opposed to the thing. And my view currently is that relationships in life and in business really is the main thing and productivity is really an extension and a byproduct of that as opposed to the other way around. Final question of the interview. Are entrepreneurs born or bred?
0: Oh man, I've been waiting for this. So I'm gonna answer like everybody else uh, who's been on the show, both. But I'm gonna give you, a, I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you a twist. Flesh that out for me. I, I kind of view it like the parable of the talents from the New Testament. So, so in that parable, you know, a master gives his servants. Uh, three different servants talents he gives one one talent one two talents and one five talents and then you know he comes back two of the servants have maximized the talents, and one has essentially squandered it so i kind of view it when you think of entrepreneurship i think we're all giving given a measure of entrepreneurship and then there's the the, the, the born part and then it's the kind of the bread part that it's up to us to, to maximize it or to, to kind of live up to our potential. So to kind of that personal development we're, we're talking about, you know, to kind of maybe look at it in a different analogy is maybe like a, a professional athlete. You know, are you drafted in the first round or you drafted in the late rounds? And what do you make of that? Do you become an all-star or hall of famer growing where you're planted? So I, I think it's both, but a lot of it depends on you nurturing your God-given abilities hmm,
1: okay, I'm I'm digging this. I'm hearing where you're coming from. There's no doubt about it. So you'll see folks that have tremendous talent, quote unquote, and squander it, right? And that's kind of like what's interesting about like the Mensa Club or organization, uh, organization of geniuses. And it very much does not correlate with life achievement, et cetera. And then you got folks that have had really hard... Circumstances and of actually, even just achieving kind of a baseline modicum of success was a huge miracle of a victory for them in light of the circumstances that they were up against. So I think that's a pretty fair answer. I would give that. I would give that two thumbs up for being a good answer and not a cop out. I appreciate you parsing the nuance. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, so Douglas, if folks want to follow a little bit more about Crestcore, and specifically, if folks want to kind of have the experience of an investor as it relates to kind of experiencing your brand, what's the best way to do that? Do you have a newsletter? Do you have an email list? How can they get in touch and follow what you're up to?
0: So kind of part of where we are is trying to make this more than just, you know, kind of cult of personality and and trying to systemize it. So the lot will change over the next you know, six months, 12 months, to 24 months. But right now it's the, the standard places, Crestcore.com LinkedIn, Facebook, bigger pockets. Anybody is welcome to come to Memphis and visit. We're always attending, you know, whether it's the conferences, whether it's the PM Grows or the NARPums, you know, love to connect at those events. Connect with us. We love sharing with each other. You know, there's nothing better than to learn, um, and learn from, learn from one another. So we're, we're big proponents on that.
1: Love it. Follow this guy online, incredibly sharp. And they just really set a great kind of standard for the trajectory of what's possible in the industry by nailing the story. Get the story right. All things good will come from it. Don't fight against the tide. That's what I appreciate about what you've been doing with Crestcore. Thanks for coming on the show. Let's stay in touch, Douglas.
0: Sounds great. Thanks, George.